Live from our nation's capital, by way of Orange County, it's the Larry O'Connor Show, and you can get it right now. 10.05 the time on Talk Radio's 790-KABC Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor today. And what a day it is. Lots of threats in the air. A grocery strike. Uh, I guess we got the green light for workers to uh, go on strike. They voted for it, but uh, no absolute decision. But I got to think that uh, the union's going to say, yeah, baby, we're going for this. Because wouldn't it be suicide for Ralph's and Albertsons and the rest of the big boys to lose customers permanently? And I think that's what's going to happen. Curious about your thoughts, 1-800-222-KABC. What's your reaction to the prospect of a grocery strike? Would you move permanently? Uh, what about Amazon and the whole foods angle? People have been knocking it because it's so expensive, but their prices are coming down. Everybody's interested in having some Amazon drone deliver uh, frozen food to them. The the interesting question is, and actually uh, John and Jillian raised this uh, earlier on KBC. What about the self-serve angle of grocery store service where, you know, we don't really need people to handle the checkout stations. For me, the self-service thing, it might as well not be there. There is no way I'm going to try to maneuver through the technology required to check myself out. I mean, you know, fresh candied chutney. Uh, I, I'm supposed to figure out how much I'm going to charge myself. The produce that doesn't have a barcode on it, it probably would make it taste worse if it had it. I, I'm not going to do that. But regardless of the self-service angle, you got a lot of people running a grocery store behind the scenes, uh, all over the place. If they're out on strike, those things are going to have to shut down and people are going to be moving to Trader Joe's or whatever. So that is a, is a pretty scary prospect. 1-800-222-KBC for your strike thoughts. The other big news that hit yesterday, uh, everybody's friend Robert Mueller is going to be testifying before Congress. It's going to be a weird doubleheader day on July 17, a few weeks off. Robert Mueller is going to appear before two House committees. The, the Democrats have sent out the subpoena. He said he didn't really want to do it. And so the first question people are asking, well, how can this be? How can Mueller be testifying when clearly the president of the United States, the boss of the Department of Justice, doesn't want it? And in fact, even though Mueller technically is a former employee now, he, he is no longer working as special counsel. He's hung up his spurs. The fact is the Department of Justice has in the past repeatedly stopped former employees from testifying if there's a valid basis for saying, no, they really shouldn't be talking. And arguably, there's a valid basis here. Trump doesn't want it. And yet, he is going to talk. And Attorney General William Barr, who's a big pal, we know, of Donald Trump, not a big pal of those who want Trump impeached, he has said, fine. Mueller wants to show up, wants to honor the subpoena. Absolutely fine. No problem. I think that the reason Barr is saying, sure, let him talk, is he doesn't want it to look like a cover-up. Barr doesn't want it to look like we're so afraid of what Mueller might say, we're just going to keep this on the down low. So the big question when Robert Mueller testifies is going to be, uh, how is he going to handle this? We, we know he doesn't welcome it. He said in his press conference a few weeks ago, you know, my work speaks for itself. But I have a feeling that secretly... How could he not welcome the opportunity to say this? So first of all, if he secretly thinks Trump should go, Trump has done impeach, impeachment-worthy stuff, 
then, you know, let's do this thing. I'll be happy to expand upon my 448-page report. If he's somehow neutral, if he's like a robot who's just thinking, well, you know, I, I, I can't take sides here. Still, he has been criticized by both sides so vociferously. I would think Robert Mueller would say, yeah, give me a chance. I'll just air this thing out. I'm going to say I don't want to testify. I want to say that my work speaks for itself. But the fact of the matter is I worked on this thing for 22 months. So let's get it on. I'm going to explain why I did what I did. Because, you know, the left hates the fact that he had the opportunity to slam the door on Donald Trump and say he colluded and he obstructed. But he didn't do either. He said he didn't collude. And he said, well, he may have obstructed. He may not. I couldn't really tell. You know, that's sort of impliedly for Congress to decide. So the left hates him for that. The right hates him because, well, the right is not going to change its mind about hating Robert Mueller. For 22 months, he has been the devil. And now, even though he came out and said there's no collusion, he certainly didn't help Trump a lot on the obstruction angle. And so nobody likes the guy. So this is probably his opportunity to explain his position, to explain why he had to do what he did. People say, well, Robert Mueller, the job of a prosecutor is to decide yes or no, up or down. Are you going to prosecute somebody or not? You make the recommendation and you didn't do that as to obstruction. Well, we know from his press, press conference that his explanation is, I had to do what I did because the president cannot, under the law, be indicted. And therefore, I was not in a position to say, oh, there's some evidence that might suggest that he's guilty. I couldn't say he's guilty of a crime because it would be an idle act. It would be a moot point. He can't be indicted. The problem, of course, is that that wasn't Mueller's call to make. It's the Office of Legal Counsel, part of the Department of Justice, that have given a couple of opinions over the last 20 years. And the opinions are, well, you know what? It's kind of a head-scratcher, but... We don't think the president really can be indicted. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot of stuff to do. And after all, you can always indict him after he leaves, just like we were going to indict Nixon. And Ford had to had to give him that pardon. And, you know, there is the impeachment option. I mean, that's certainly a, a lot of punishment. So that's the opinion of these lawyers in the Department of Justice 20 years ago. That doesn't mean that that is the law. The Constitution says nothing about whether a president may be indicted or not. The Supreme Court of the United States in the last 250 plus years has never said whether or not a president may be indicted. So you can't really say, oh, that's black letter law. And yet that presumably is the excuse by Mueller for not going ahead and tackling the issue of whether Trump did or did not obstruct justice. So the Democrats' objectives in terms of bringing Mueller in front of the House they're pretty transparent. They're not looking to advance the investigation. They want sound bites that will hold up on the campaign trail and can justify impeachment. You can bet, put your money down right now, you're going to see Robert Mueller's face on Democrat TV commercials countless times between now and November 2020 going over his highlights reel. And what is his highlights reel? Well, there are 10 or 11 things that he said might add up to obstruction of justice by Donald Trump from trying to get his uh, his fixer, Michael Cohen, to lie about the Trump Tower in Moscow, to try to get uh, his lawyer, Don McGahn, to lie about whether or not there was a recommendation to fire Mueller, uh, firing James Comey because the heat was on in terms of Russia. These are the highlights real items in the Mueller report that the Democrats are lovingly going to recount. They're going to ask Mueller about each and every one. 
And it's just going to be a bonanza because what they're all about is sound bites to assist them either in bringing Trump down by way of impeachment or just getting an advantage going into the 2020 elections. All right, so now let's move to what the Republicans are going to do when Mueller testifies on July 17. Well, first of all, they're going to say, eh, gee, uh, Bob, tell us about the composition of your team. Uh, we, we seem to understand that there were 16 or 17 lawyers, most of whom gave a lot of money to Hillary or other Democrats. Don't seem to be any Republicans to speak of on this. So tell us about that. Do you really think that was fair? Next, the Republicans are going to say, you know, what about this deep state effort by the Obama administration to, to spy on the Trump campaign? You got the Steele dossier paid for by the Democratic National Committee. It was arranged for by a Democrat political group and a Democrat-supported law firm. What about that? And there's going to be a provocative question posed by Republicans to Robert Mueller, namely, okay, let me get this straight. No collusion by the president. You announced that early this year, March, April this year. When exactly did you come to that conclusion? Because we know you've been working on it for 22 months. When did you decide no collusion by President Trump? And is it possible that if you look at your internal timeline, you came to the conclusion there was no collusion before the November 2018 midterms? Could that be a possible reason for the delay? So you can bet the Republicans are going to push that. The danger for the Democrats when it comes to getting Mueller up there is after disappointing the Democrats once by not coming out and saying he he colluded and without saying he definitely con, uh, was guilty of obstruction, the danger is that Mueller will again disappoint and leave the impression that the whole thing is a nothing burger by refusing to say, yes, damn it, he did obstruct. I, I just couldn't say he obstructed because you can't indict a president. Because if that happens, that could set back the impeachment effort. And I think they are setting themselves up for a fall for this reason. When the Democrats ask Mueller in the hearing on July 17, they're going to say, all right, just hypothetically, we understand what you said, kind of, about the business of the president not being indictable. But hypothetically, Mr. Mueller, you worked on this for 22 years. You're in a better position to figure this out than anybody else. Hypothetically, if you could indict a sitting president, would the stuff that Trump did qualify? Is it indictment worthy for obstruction of justice? Yes or no, and explain. You know what he's going to do? He's going to say, I, I'm, not, I'm not in a position to answer hypothetical questions. And in fact, a lot of people say it's not a good idea to force a prosecutor to explain their position. I don't know if you saw Alan Dershowitz on uh, on uh, cable TV recently, he was saying, no, if a prosecutor says, uh, I'm not recommending to pro the prosecution of somebody, prosecutors aren't supposed to then speak publicly about the pile of evidence that they looked at that didn't add up to a sufficient basis for indicting somebody. Well, we know James Comey was happy to do that about Hillary. Who could forget the 45-minute speech about how bad Hillary was with respect to her server back in July 2016? And then the punchline was, oh, nothing to see here, folks. Return to your homes because I'm not recommending a, a prosecution against Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people said, you're not supposed to do that. Prosecutors don't talk about evidence that didn't add up to being prosecution-worthy. And, of course, the Democrats are forcing Mueller to do exactly that. I guess the answer to that argument is we're not talking about a coke dealer here where you were sifting and weighing the cocaine and deciding whether to prosecute him. We're talking about Donald Trump. He is the president and impeachment is an option. So if you want to call the Mueller report an impeachment referral, fine. 
That's kind of the job of the House of Representatives to figure out if the president should be impeached, to help them figure out whether or not after 22 months and 17 lawyers working on this issue, uh, does it really justify us, the members of the House of Representatives, as proceeding with, uh, with impeachment? We've got a few questions for you, Mr. Mueller, about your 22 months of work to help us decide whether we should vote yes or no on impeachment. At the end of the day, and I think Nancy Pelosi is smart and experienced enough to realize this, at the end of the day, there's going to be a very risky political calculus involved in terms of whether the Democrats pull the trigger on impeachment. Because if they do, and if they wind up with the same experience the Republicans had when they couldn't resist impeaching Bill Clinton because he lied about sex, they paid the price. I mean, when you look at the second term of a president and you look at the midterm vote, for Congress, Senate, House of Representatives, in the second term of a president. Historically, throughout our nation's history, virtually every time the party in power gets clobbered, the, they are tired, the second terms are scandal-ridden, whether it's Watergate or Iran-Contra or, or whatever, and the party in power, they just take a bath at the polls. What happened to Bill Clinton it, with his midterms before he was out of office the last two years? He clobbered the Republicans because the voters were fed up with a bunch of blue noses in the House of Representatives, all a Twitter, before there was Twitter, about Bill Clinton having sex with Monica Lewinsky and lying about it. And the Republicans railed and pounded the table and said, doggone it, he lied under oath 18 times. And the American public said, you know what? Everybody lies about sex, whether it's under oath or not. And we blame you, Republicans, for putting us through this ridiculous impeachment drama and so now the question is, will Mueller's testimony be a nothing burger, not really add a smoking gun piece of evidence that the Democrats can ride to glory with respect to impeachment? And as a result, Nancy Pelosi will probably be counseling her folks to, to stay out to resist the temptation. We're also going to talk today about uh, the debates coming up uh, tonight. It's really fascinating. With, with 20 Democrat candidates, uh, people are wondering, you know, how exactly uh, did, did this thing get arranged? Uh, how did they decide which 10 went uh, on each night? And basically what they did was they, they took everybody's poll numbers and they, and they took everybody's uh, donation numbers. And that decided who got into the debates. But then they pretty much randomly picked who would debate on the various nights with some of the, the biggies on each night. Well, Liz Warren is the big winner in this situation because if you look at the top candidates, whether it's Bernie or Kamala Harris or Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren, the only one of the four, the big four, who is in tonight's debate is Elizabeth Warren. So I imagine the interest may drop off after everybody sees what the what the hubbub is about the debate tonight. And she's going to have an opportunity to, to make her case, to provide her plans. And the fascinating thing on the debate tonight is going to be whether they go high or low. They can go high by just talking about themselves and all the great plans they have. If they go low, are they going to snipe at each other on the stage or are they just going to go after Biden? Because the classic strategy, as we saw with the Donald Trump situation in 2016, is when you got a whole slew of people running for president and one guy has emerged as the leader of the pack, everybody below him knows if we don't knock this guy out first, there's no chance any of us can do it. And so they got to tear him down. So are you going to see a bunch of Democrats sniping at Biden or 
they lose valuable time to build themselves up because with 20 people and 10 per night, you're only going to have a few minutes per person. It does a Bernie or a Liz or a Kamala no good to tear Biden down if they can't emerge as the progressive alternative to Biden. What you want to look for, I think, in the debates are two things. First, don't do a gaffe. I mean, you know, you remember Gerald Ford, he said Poland wasn't controlled by the communists and everybody knew that they were. And so everybody dumped on him for being an idiot. You remember the history lesson of Dan Quayle when he's justifying the fact that he's running for vice president and he's pretty young. He's in his early 40s. And he said, well, I'm the same age as John Kennedy was. And of course, Lloyd Benson, the VP nominee for the Democrats, scored a knockout punch by saying, uh, Mr. Quayle, I, I knew John Kennedy. I was a friend of John Kennedy's. Sir, you're no John Kennedy. Dan Quayle hasn't lived that down to this day. Nixon, of course, had his sweaty upper lip in the Kennedy debate. So, oh, don't forget Rick Perry, who forgot the third branch of the government that he wanted to nuke. So the first lesson in the debate is no gaffe. The second lesson is get in a zinger. Get a soundbite, a fancy metaphor, water cooler stuff that usually requires planning. So I think they ought to hire Stephen Colbert's writers. Time is 1022 here on KABC Royal Oaks. In for Larry O'Connor. Hey, uh, it is fun. It is timely. It is weird. It's the Randy Wang Show podcast. Stuff you need to know and some things you wish you didn't know. Daily, the Randy Wang Show podcast. Download and subscribe at iTunes and, of course, KABC.com. Ten twenty-seven. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety. K A B C. Royal Oaks. In for Larry O'Connor this fine Wednesday morning. Hey, right after the news, uh, be sure and join us because John Caddy's Klimak of NBC Four is going to be with us talking about the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles. Meantime, though, let's give away some tickets. Uh, KBC uh, welcomes Miss Saigon. Cameron McIntosh's spectacular new production at the Pantages Theater, July 16 through August 11. Tickets are on sale now. Be caller 9 to 1-888-790-5222 for a pair of tickets for July 17th, furnished by Pantages Theater. So I think uh, the most discouraging, depressing story of the year just, just hit the, uh, the wires recently. Uh, get a load of this headline. A third of women only date men because of the free food. Now, is that sad? That, to me, is really discouraging. Uh, sometimes ladies uh, just want to try that hot new restaurant. Uh, maybe money is tight. Uh, grocery stores out of a frozen, uh, favorite frozen meal. And so there has been a study uh, by the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. They studied uh, 1,000 women and noted that a third of them date for the food, not because they have any interest in the guy. They very sadly noted that the women who felt dating for food was socially acceptable were more likely to exhibit the dark triad of personality traits, that's psychopathy, Machiavellianism and narcissism. Well, that sounds like a fun date, doesn't it? Uh, the uh, foodie callers, they're calling them instead of booty calls, they're talking about foodie callers. They're more likely to engage in one-night stands, faking an orgasm, or sending unsolicited sexual pictures. This is not painting a really flattering picture of, uh, of womanhood today. 
I wonder what percentage of the gals are supposedly psychopaths. Very discouraging. 1029 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, The Place, Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor. We'll have John Keddie's Klimak of NBC4 right after the news. 1036 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KBC, Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor. I have to disagree with Jeff Whittle, though. He said I was sitting in for Larry O'Connor. In the legal world, we say that assumes facts, not in evidence. How did he know I wasn't standing, okay? Dino, you know some broadcasters who stand. And as a fact, matter of fact, I stand all day, every day, well, 90%. My back used to kill me all the time. I have a standing desk now, two years. It's amazing. It's a fabulous thing. So... As it happens, I am sitting now, so I guess Jeff was right. Hey, let's welcome our pal John Caddy's Klimak, a reporter for NBC4. Uh, he's going to fill us in on the latest uh, stuff about the homelessness uh, crisis. I know NBC4 has been covering this homelessness story like a blanket with an amazing series called Streets of Shame. John, welcome to the program. Good morning, Roy. You know, talking about standing, I'm physically standing at the moment. Uh, good, so your I've back is going to feel good, I... too. Well, I've been asked why I do stand-up comedy, and I said because I prefer to sit. <laughs> I, I'd love to see you on the stage of the Ice House, John. I know you, you have an amazing sense of humor. But unfortunately, there's nothing funny about this homelessness story, but you have, you have really been all over it. You had a terrific report just the other day about, about myths uh, concerning homelessness in L.A. Give us a, an overview of what that involves. Yeah, here's the thing. When we speak with uh, residents of L.A., taxpayers uh, who want to know what's going on with their money, the Triple H funds, for example, um, they talk about what they see on the street. And what you see is not really the entire reality. And that's, uh, that's something that I think is a hard pill for some people to swallow because uh, the homeless count came out uh, a couple weeks ago, beginning of June, uh, pointing out that there's been an increase of 16% in the city of L.A. of homelessness. Uh, 12% for the whole county, 16% for the city of L.A. And one of the numbers that they put out was that 76% of the homeless population does not have mental health issues or drug problems. That was so amazing. I saw that in your report, and it totally blew me away because I've been under the assumption that, oh, well, you know, back in the Reagan era, uh, we used to round up people and we'd force them to get treatment. And it actually sounds like a pretty good idea because people who are condemned to a life of no treatment for mental illness and, and drug abuse and so on, you know, it, it's just going to be a miserable life. So why not, you know, take them in under some sort of 5150 hold or something? But what we're learning is that, as you say, three quarters of them don't have these problems, which makes you, it's a real head-scratcher as to what to do next. Right, so, the, so the, 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 the perception is that that's not the case, that you see people out and you, you know, we, we see pictures and video all the time, people, you know, strung out on drugs, laid out, needles still sticking out of their arms, uh, but that's not the majority. That's really a minority. It's just, they just happen to be more visual. Uh, and that perception, I think, could be one of the things that is uh, keeping a lot of people from understanding the major problem that we're having here with the homeless issue. So the city's been, been pushing affordable housing, how important it is to get people into housing. But when we are on the street talking to the people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, a lot of them, they, they say it's well-intentioned, but the city has too many rules. You have to be sober. You have to be in at a certain time. Uh, and that's keeping them from doing that. So we were actually speaking with a USC professor of social work uh, who wrote a book called Housing First. Uh, just came out a couple of years ago. He even said he, he shared it with Mayor Garcetti um, that his, his belief is that you can solve homelessness by having the housing and not making sobriety the first element. 
that you get them into housing, get them off the street, that's the first step that they need to then clean up their lives. Just getting, getting them clean isn't going isn't gonna to save them. That's, that's his, his argument. Um, wrote a whole book on it. Uh, but he was the one that we were talking to about all these misconceptions. Another one that he pointed out was that uh, people believe that people are coming, homeless people are coming to the city of Los Angeles either because of the weather or because we offer so many services. And he says from all the studies that they've done, that's not the case. These people are local people, have lived in L.A. before they became homeless. We're talking with John Caddy's Klimak, uh, NBC4 reporter, and he is part of the uh, special report they're running, Streets of Shame. John, as I understand it, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals recently handled a case, and there was a settlement by the city of L.A. and others, that basically said, look, if there are not sufficient shelters or beds for people, you cannot bar folks from pitching a tent at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. And that's why we're seeing such a mushrooming of these tents. So... Uh, what do your experts who you talk to say about why we shouldn't just build more freaking beds and therefore we can then say to people, you can't pitch your tent on Wilshire Boulevard because now we have enough beds? Because I think that the, the mushrooming of tents is what is going to just totally transform this debate and cause politicians to be tossed out on their ass because voters are going to be furious. So why can't we just spend more money on beds and go back to saying you can't go uh, sleep on the streets? You make a good point, and I think that, that that also proves the point that when people talk about homelessness and the crisis that we're having, and and uh, you know having a heart for for these these victims of homelessness, um, there's a there's a different population that people are talking about. I think you know residents and taxpayers get ticked off because they're seeing these tents, they're seeing these drugs on the street. Those are the ones that they want to see cleaned up. They understand that there's other people who are uh, you know not as visual, perhaps living in their cars. Uh, you know, with much more difficult stories as to where, how they ended up where they are that need the help that, you know, they understand that those are the people that they wanted to help when they, when they passed Measure Triple H, for example, to try to get these houses into effect. We spoke with the city controller, Ron Galperin, about all this uh, earlier this month, and he pointed out that to date, $1.2 billion from Triple H, not one penny has been spent on opening any type wow. of shelter, not Amazing. one bed. Now, the city will tell you, mind you, the city will tell you there's plenty in the pipeline. The controller says, yeah, but the pipeline, it takes way too long to clear out that pipe. And that's part of the problem, the bureaucratic red tape to clear all that up. Hey, John, we got just half a minute, but I have to shift gears and say congratulations on becoming a dad. You actually went on paternity leave, such a modern guy. Tell us what that was like. I got. I got to thank NBC for that. They gave us. Uh, they gave me four months of paternity leave, uh, which was absolutely necessary because we had twins. It was incredible. It was uh, absolutely needed. Um, back to work now, though, and I tell you what, leaving every morning is hard to do. John Kenny's Klimak, NBC Four reporter, part of the Streets of Shame uh, series. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Rob. Be sure you check out NBCLA.com for all of our coverage on this. This is this has been going on a long time, and we're going to keep it moving. It's a deal. Ten forty-three, the time. Talk Radio seven ninety KABC. When we come back, are progressives getting too grabby? Stick with us. 1040 at the time, Talk Radio 790K ABC Royal Oaks. In for Larry O'Connor this Wednesday morning, talking homelessness. And it was great to hear from John Keddies Klimak of NBC4 and the USC professors that they've been talking to. But what about your thoughts? What would you do if you were king and could wave a wand? 1-800-222-KABC. I think people are getting really fed up. We're talking about tossing the mayor out. They're going to recall him. The power of the incumbency is going to totally dissipate here. I mean, this crisis is such in people's faces. The politicians 
better be fearful for their their jobs. I mean, people, you know, folks are walking down the street. Hey, Madge, look, we're living in Escape from New York. Isn't that Kurt Russell? No, Harry, it's it's Blade Runner. That's Harrison Ford. No, it's Mad Max. It's Mel Gibson. That's what people think when they see this stuff on the street. Let's go to the phones. Charles from Monrovia. You're on KBC. Welcome. Well, a couple of things I would do is, uh, one is, when possible, hire the homeless. You know, if it's uh, cleanup or maintenance or helping to build a shelter, those different things they can do that, that they're, you know, they're, some of them are willing to work. Some people are homeless just because the rent kept going up on them. So they, you know, so put them to work. That, that, that would be a priority for me. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. It, it, of course, it's a little bit like, I, I think it was a gag. People were circulating when everybody was talking about the wall. They were saying Trump's plan was we're going to get, you know, let the illegal immigrants work on building the wall. But then, you know, when they're putting the finishing touches, you know, make sure they're on, on the, the southern side of the wall. But, yeah, I mean, that would provide that would provide work for the homeless. Um I don't know. Did, have you, Charles, do you th- agree with that stat we heard from John Caddy's Klimak that 76% of the homeless uh, do not have problems such as drug addiction and uh, and mental illness? I mean, it's kind of hard to believe because I think the general feeling when people see folks on the street is, oh, you know, that's all of them have some form of mental illness or, or drug issue. What's your experience? Well, you know, I, I, I've... T- spoken to some and uh i would agree with that just to the you know look at the ones that i've talked to and uh the other thing too is we really got to look at how the money is spent here they spend a billion dollars and uh the mayor hasn't really uh came up with any good explanations so we need to really track down to see who's that money's going to oh you're absolutely right i mean it's crazy when we are spending more and more money on the problem and yet, the numbers and percentages of homeless keep going up, and at the same time, the economy is booming. Unemployment is at an all-time low for people of color. Now, some folks say, well, you know, the Trump economy isn't all that wonderful. It's helping mostly the rich, some of the middle class, but it's really not. There's no trickle-down effect and so on. I, I, you know, I think that's just politicking. I, I think the bottom line is that we don't want tents on the street. Okay, we don't want shopping carts on the street. And what we need to do is get a solution to the problem that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals was so focused on. What they said was it's unconstitutional to ban sleeping on the street if there aren't enough beds. Well, how difficult is it to build enough beds? I mean, it just doesn't seem like it should be rocket science since we're pouring tens of millions of dollars into the situation build more shelters, and then make sure people aren't living on the street. I mean, folks talk about NIMBY, not in my backyard, as if it's a bad thing. What's wrong with saying, hey, I worked for 30 years to be able to afford a really nice house. I finally made it, moving on up, and now across the street, you've got needles and harassment and feces and violence and feral people, this toxic, dangerous. I mean, why would you want that in your backyard? Why would you allow that? Hey, Charles, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Uh, let's, let, yeah, go ahead, Charles. Another point I, I want to make real quick. Another thing you know, government waste is I was reading about the uh, uh, illegal immigrants in the detention centers. Right. They're spending $750 a night for some, for, for, per child. Wow. That doesn't make any kind of sense. You could go to the Waldorf Astoria for that. 
So somebody is banking money. Somebody's making money off all this. Amazing. Big money. Hey, Charles, thanks uh, very much for your thoughts. Uh, I was actually wrong. You can't go to the Waldorf Astoria for that because uh, I think the uh, – the Chinese have purchased the Waldorf Astoria. It's no longer available. 1053 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor. Probing in a good way. Bias perception, self-delusion. On the next Midday Live, journalist David McCraney tells you you may not be as smart as you think. What? Is that even possible? Mm -hmm. Should we be more responsible in the stories we share online? And did we learn the wrong lesson from the marshmallow test, the one you taught me, Dr. Drew? That and more on the next Midday Live with Antoine and Dr. Drew on AM790 KBC. 1057 The Time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC, Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor. I don't quite understand that promo, probing in a good way. In what sense could probing be in a bad way? I don't understand, but I, I don't understand a lot of things. Like how to solve the damned homelessness crisis, 1-800-222-KBC. Let's go to Dave in Whittier. Dave, what say you? Royal, I can tell you, you know, Doug McIntyre and Leanne Tweeden, um, are, are absolutely correct about the illegal aliens pushing out the housing, you know, filling it up. And I have proof. I have called the Anaheim Police Department several times. I've seen the evidence over there off Fashion Lane and Park in Anaheim, this apartment complex. I go over there and there's all these cars double parked. I call the Anaheim Police Department and complain about it. Then the following week, guess what? They made parallel parking sideways all of a sudden within a week to accommodate these illegal aliens filling up the neighborhoods with double parking wow last week same thing over at banyan and uh balsam off of state college boulevard called and complained again and then over um in this other area, the same thing. It's these illegal aliens. Well, Dave, you make a good point. And, and, you know, I don't know if you heard the interview with John Caddy's Klimak recently, earlier in the hour, and he was talking about this USC professor who's poo-pooing all that. But I, I, I sense that you're right because, let's face it, California has the highest poverty rate in the nation. And the Caterers reason the Golden State, the home of Hollywood and Silicon Valley, has the highest poverty rate in the nation is because we import poor people. We are a sanctuary state. We have sanctuary cities throughout the sanctuary state. So how do you avoid that problem? I mean, and whether the mentally ill and the, the drug abusers are 70, 25% or 50 or whatever, these people need help. And sometimes you have to force them to get help. Like we did in the old days, it's really not fair to them to suffer through a lifetime of the, this despair just so that they can be free and feral, according to some people. In 59 on KBC, stick with us. Live from our nation's capital, by way of Orange County, it's the Larry O'Connor Show. And you can get it right now. 11.05 The Time, Talk Radio, 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor, two-day only. Happy Wednesday to you all. So now I feel really stupid. I have never heard the expression five-finger discount. I, I guess I get the logic of it. You know, I can work through that. But I'm asking Dino, I'm asking Steve, oh, yeah, that's a thing, that five-finger discount. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I just got to get out more. Uh, I, I feel stupid. Well, later in the hour, speaking of stupidity, I'm going to explain why the soccer star who uh, refuses to uh, stand at attention, etc. during the national anthem is an idiot, but not for the reason you might suspect. So I'll share that with you a little later. 
Also, a little later in the hour, we're going to be chatting with our pal Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition. You will not believe the story he is working on. But first, we are delighted to uh, join, be joined by an author by the name of Jonathan Rauch. He is a uh, senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. He has authored several books and articles on public policy, culture, and economics. And the reason he's on now is because I just finished a fabulous book he wrote called The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Midlife. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks, Royal. Well, you're quite welcome. I loved the book. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, talk about a good news <laughs> message. And, it, you know, when I get to 50, <laughs> uh, I'll look forward to that. Uh, there seems to be a huge good news message in your book that after 50, instead of an inevitable decline physically, with cognition and happiness, the future is actually brighter. Do I have that right? You have that right. There's there's two kinds of pieces of huge good news here. The first is what you just said. It's not true, of course, in every case. We're talking about averages. But it turns out as we age past midlife, which is a difficult transition for us in terms of our values and our expectations, and there's a period of disappointment, it turns out on average we get more and more satisfied with life as we age. Um, right up until the end, we invest more in the things that really matter, relationships and our families and less in stuff like ambition, which is always a moving goalpost. Um, and a lot of people get depressed in midlife because they think, well, after this, it's going to be decline in depression. Well, couldn't be more wrong about that. The future is bright. And here's the second piece of good news. We are getting 10, 15, eventually 20 plus years of additional life. We, the human species, but right here, right now in America, in the most satisfying pro-social period of life, late adulthood. I would claim this is the greatest gift the human species has ever received, and it's happening right now. We're talking with Jonathan Rauch, author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Midlife. I was really fascinated to see in your book that you were inspired to write it, in part, based on a set of four paintings by a 19th century artist named Thomas Cole uh, called The Voyage of Life. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, cool. You're the first interviewer who ever picked up on that. Um, <laughs> Thank that, you. That's very cool. Yeah, so I'm 20 years old. I'm visiting the National Gallery in D.C. for the first time, and I walk up and see these four huge, amazing, gorgeous paintings. They're called The Voyage of Life, painted in 1840 by American landscape painter Thomas Cole. They are beloved. They are his masterpiece. Go see them. Go look them up online. But what they depict, although I didn't know it at the time, was much later, um, in just recently, last few decades, validated by science, which is that um, it, picks the, the, it depicts the voyage of life in which, as young adults about age 20, we're super ambitious, we're reaching for fame and glory, and we have great plans and great expectations that when we fulfill our ambitions, we'll be happy, because why wouldn't we? And then it depicts midlife as a rocky passage, um, through rapids, a time of great turbulence. And it's an emotional depiction. It's not because of other people or society. It's what's going on in our heads. So Cole nails it. And he's in midlife when he paints these paintings. And then old age, he paints his time of tranquility and satisfaction. And I look at these now and say, 
wow, so humans have known about this for a long time, but only recently is modern science catching up to it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a wonderful metaphor. And folks, definitely go online and check this out. Thomas Cole, the first picture is a baby in a golden boat with a guardian angel and the river is calm. The second picture is the youth. Uh, he's guiding the boat himself and there's a castle in the sky. The third picture, he, it's manhood. He's still in the golden boat, but it's rainy and, and he's trying to maneuver through these horrible rocky shoals. And the fourth, old age, he's reaching uh, the end. He's in the ocean. The heavens are beckoning. It's just a wonderful series of pictures. Hey, Jonathan, uh, you yeah, talked... They're, they're reprinted in the book, by the way, for, oh, great. Uh, for those who want to. Yeah. Well, I, I actually listened, so I wasn't able to actually see or, or feel anything. Uh, Audible books. Oh, but is you a, saw them online, though, right? Oh, it went online, absolutely. Thomas Cole is Super. wonderful. Great. So you talk about a pretty surprising conclusion, this U-curve, the that life satisfaction is U-shaped with contentment, high in the 20s, plunging in middle age, and taking a turn for the better after 50. The conclusion was it's also present in apes, and I was trying to figure out how that could be true. Why would that be true? Well, we don't know the whys of midlife crisis in apes, unfortunately. We just know that it's, it's now been found in um, multiple chimpanzee and orangutan troops in, um, uh, in three continents and four separate environments. And, and if, although we don't know what the cause for this would be in apes, what it does suggest is that this pattern of declining happiness in midlife is something that's pretty deeply wired. And we do have some ideas why it might be true in, in humans. Apes, you know, it's harder to ask them, so we're not so sure. So toward the end of the book, you get into some practical stuff that folks can do to kind of soldier through the depths of the U-curve in terms of interacting with people and kind of talking yourself out of continual negative loops of thought. So what are the main points there? Well, of course, do all the things that are good for you anyway, like exercise and eat right and don't smoke. But in the book, I try to focus on cases like mine, which are things were going great for me in my 40s, yet that only seemed to bring increasing dissatisfaction, which made more sense until I started learning the science behind it, figuring out what's going on, which is I was in a transition to a different set of values where just achievement, scoring points, didn't seem satisfying anymore, but the later values of life, where we more invest more in the things we, we cherish most, the people really, hadn't kicked in yet. So the question is, how do you get through this transition? Some of the pieces of advice in the book, I won't try to go through them all, but present-mindedness, stay in the present. Uh, life dissatisfaction is a time trap because we're disappointed in the past and pessimistic about the future. Don't dwell on the past and the future. Another thing is midlife is a good time for change. It's a values transition. So change is good, but step, don't leap. There will be a temptation in many cases, I felt it, to throw away your life and start over, you know, move to the Bahamas or Mexico or whatever. That's a bad approach. Build on your strengths and capital, talk to other people, make logical moves that don't throw away your life. So if it doesn't work out, you can always backtrack. Um, another is, it seems simple, but Royal, it's so important. Remember that time is on your side. The most helpful thing to do in many cases is just wait it out. Don't panic. There's nothing wrong with you. If your life is objectively going great in your forties, yet you feel unsatisfied and restless and frustrated, 
there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, there's something right with you. Your, your brain, your values are undergoing a necessary but sometimes painful transition. Another thing is talk to people. Don't do what I do. I didn't tell anyone because I was ashamed. I was so successful. Yet, you know, I didn't want to complain to people. I had no reason to feel bad about my life. But isolation, being in the closet, only make it worse. It's important to find people you can confide in. And, and increasingly, counselors understand what's going on. Or if you have, if you're doing fine, but have a friend or family member who's experiencing a hard midlife transition, encourage them to talk. Don't make jokes about midlife crisis. You know, when are you going to buy this convertible? That is, that is really not helpful. So those are some of the things I discuss in the book. There's, there's more. We're talking with Jonathan Rauch. He's the author of The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Midlife. It's funny you mentioned the, the sports car because I was thinking, you know, gee, maybe you'll be sued by the people who make red sports cars because you're, you're giving an alternative. But by coincidence, uh, we happen to have a caller who uh, has a pertinent question. Jeff from Encino. Uh, welcome yeah. to KBC. This is Jonathan Rauch. Yes, I was holding when the sports car subject came up. But, yes, we don't know the reason why apes, buy, uh, why apes have midlife crises. But we do know that a lot of them also buy sports cars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, point, point made. Uh, so, Jonathan, I guess it's reassuring for people to understand that midlife malaise is actually normal. I mean, that's a huge, great fact and takeaway from your book, that they're not infected with some kind of mental pathology. And the other piece of great news is, you know, you think of a deterioration. Once you get hit 50, well, it's basically downhill in every way. But according to the research that you compiled in your book, it ain't that way at all. And it sounds amazing that, in fact, happiness quotients tend to go up with each passing decade, even though your body's starting to fall apart. This is one of the most interesting, counterintuitive, yet robust findings that I came across in researching this book. Even as people age into their 60s, 70s, and often 80s and become physically frailer and have more ailments, their life satisfaction continues to increase on average. Well, how could that be? Well, it turns out that as we age, we get better at focusing on the things that are most important in life. And those don't necessarily have to do with, you know, going to the gym and, and looking great. Um, they have to do with investing in people. They have to do with, with wisdom, with what David Brooks has called the second mountain, the, the part of life where we focus more on others and giving back. And it turns out that's a much better way to be satisfied with life than, you know, looking beautiful or, or running a decathlon or whatever it might be. Now, you say you actually close out the book with, uh, with these words. You say the hidden gift of the happiness curve is three words. Gratitude comes easier. Explain why that's true. When I had my period of malaise, you know, I don't call it midlife crisis because it's totally normal. And it went on for years. It didn't feel like a crisis. It felt like a long stretch of feeling gloomy and disappointed and unaccountably kind of I'd wake up in the morning and say, I need to get a different life. But, but I knew there was no reason for it. So when I was going through that stretch, oops, I forgot the question. Could you just repeat it? Oh, yeah. The, the, explain know. why it's true that gratitude comes easier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The worst thing. The worst now, thing you're disproving the idea that with age we don't fall apart, Jonathan, if you're going to forget <laughs> the question. <laughs> Sorry. I'm... Definitely getting some, some of the <laughs> cognitive effects of aging, but there are compensations for that. We can come back. Anyway, the worst part of that period of my life was I felt ungrateful. And I'm someone who believes 
gratitude is a moral virtue. Like, I'm so lucky. I have so much. How could I not feel grateful? Mm-hmm. Um, what I didn't know at that time was that the changes that we've been talking about, changes in, in my brain and my values and my expectations, stuff that's very deep in human biology, primate biology, was working on my brain and made it harder for me to feel gratitude. It wasn't my fault. There was nothing wrong with me. And the great thing about, I'm now at the end of my 50s, about aging through this is, is gratitude comes back and it comes back better than ever. It comes back in a deeper way where you start really feeling instead of just saying, my goodness, I'm here today. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't have bad days and frustrations and disappointments and all those things. But yeah, gratitude gets easier. And that is, that's a gift. We've been talking with Jonathan Rauch. And although we're focusing on his book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After Midlife, I want to switch gears because you're very well known for an article you wrote in The Atlantic back in 2003 titled, Caring for Your Introvert, The Habits and Needs of a Little Understood Group. And that piece has had a pretty big impact. Tell us about your theme in that article. (laughs) I'm, I'm chuckling because uh, that, that article was written as a throwaway just for fun. And then Atlantic's editor said, well, we'll just throw it in the magazine. And then it was totally forgotten about for four or five years. And then it went viral online. And now it's going to be on my tombstone. I'm not surprised. Um, I mean, it, it's just a huge topic. Well, it accidentally seemed to create the introverts' rights movement, which has changed the world. People know what introverts are now. They know that if we feel like staying in instead of going out on a Saturday night and reading a book, there's, they're not allowed to say, you're too serious, come have fun. <laughs> right. Um, they understand. And introverts now will say, I'm an introvert, I need some downtime, and people will get that. When I wrote Caring for Your Introvert in 2003, people would say stuff like, oh, man, don't be so gloomy. What's the matter with you? So society is getting less extrovertist, and that's, and that's good. Um, but I, I wrote that because I was a frustrated introvert, and I felt like, and it was, you know, it's it's kind of, it's actually humor. Um, the science in it is real, but but it's written in this kind of bitchy grievance tone of voice. So I was actually also kind of poking fun at grievance lobbies as well. So what about um, the idea of just pretending to be an extrovert? And I'll give you a, my personal example. Uh, when I was a teenager in my 20s, I, I think I was pretty introverted. Uh, but uh, I wanted to get on a game show. It was called Split Second. It was a national ABC show. And I was told you have to be bubbly and effervescent to get on. So doggone it, I was bubbly throughout all the interviews. I get on the show. I was lucky enough to win the car. Six months later, a friend of mine comes to me and says, Hey, Royal, I'm trying to get out on that show you were on. Guess what? They talked about you and they showed a video of you. I said, What do you mean? Yeah, they showed a video of you winning the car and they turned it off and said, That's how you should not react. So... I had reverted to my introverted nature and was very blasé about winning the damn car, $5,000, a Monte Carlo with European styling and American handling. I remember that. So why, isn't the, why isn't the answer, Jonathan Rauch, to just to, you know, act like you're extroverted even though you're not? Well, most high-functioning introverts, uh, which I would claim I am one and, and sounds like you are one too, except in that uh, I'm, I'm a middle-functioning, but we're acting all the time. We constantly portray the role of, of extroverts. That's our, that's our lot in life. It's our fate. And in fact, actors, professional actors tend to be introverts. So Ronald it's possible Reagan. Jack Nicholson is really an introvert. an introvert? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that's pretty good. A lot of actors are introverts because introverts are accustomed to having to act. You know, we go to these social situations and we have to 
present ourselves. So we feel like we're on stage and we're often very good at that. And we often enjoy it. I enjoy sort of being at a social occasion and being out there and doing well, but it's exhausting. We need to rest afterwards. A true extrovert, you know, you can't stop them from behaving this way, but we're playing the parts of extroverts all the time. This is amazing. Jonathan Rauch, in 20 minutes, we have solved the problems of malaise, aging, and introversion. This is truly remarkable radio. Well, it's a good thing the interview only lasted 20 minutes because in another five minutes we would have solved world peace. <laughs> we'll see you again sometime, I hope. Jonathan Rauch, author of uh, Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets fun. Better. See you later. 11.22 The Time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC Royal Oaks, in for Larry O'Connor. 11.27 The Time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC Royal Oaks, in for Larry O'Connor today. Talking homelessness. Let's get back to the phones. Ben in Los Angeles. You're on KBC. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for take, taking my call. Uh, I have a question. Uh, they said they spent $1.2 billion last year, correct? Uh, I guess so. That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, they're estimating about 50,000 homeless in the L.A. County region, roughly, correct? Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's roughly about $25,000 a year per person. Where did that money go? That's $2,000 well, a month. You, you, you can get a very... No, you're right. Oh, it's insane. And one place it went, Ben, is toilets. Andy Gump, chemical toilets. I saw some ridiculous statistic of $349,000 per year. You could buy a car for that or 10 cars but, or but, but, a but, house. But let, me give, let, me, let me give you a perspective. Okay. If you're, if you're spending $2,000 per person, that's what the, account, the accountability is, 2000 per person per month. You could, you could have a nice mobile home park built for less than that. No, you're absolutely so you right. There's to, something wrong. Well, why in the world, where, spending that much money, why money do we go? not have enough shelters? You're right. Where, where did the money go? There's no, there's no accountability. They're yeah. driving us. There's no accountability. This is, this is a scam. It's a fraud. The Fed, as I said several times before, this is a, this is a huge mess bigger than uh, Flint, Michigan. The Fed had to step in there to clean it up. We need the Fed to step in and clean up this mess. No, it's you're right. It's got, it's got fraud written all over it. Ben, it's a total mess. And the, the problem, of course, is you have a situation where uh, you have a very progressive view about people should have the freedom to live where they want and be the way they want. But we are entitled to a city without tents on the street. As long as we if provide we, shelters and beds, then we sh we shouldn't have any any reason for people to be living on the streets. Eleven twenty nine, the time. Talk radio seven ninety KBC. Hey, imagine Good Day LA, the landmark TV news show, uncensored. Julian Barbary, Steve Edwards, and Dorothy Lucy reunite to host the OKLA OK podcast. It's one of a kind fun, just like you loved it on Good Day LA. Download the latest OKLA OK podcast right now. It's free and uncensored. Download and subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Tune in and kabc.com. Hey, when we come back, our pal Jim Murray, chief correspondent for our Inside Edition, will join. Join us here on KABC. Get it. Get it. Get it. Right. AM 790. ABC. Eleven thirty-five. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety. KABC. Royal Oaks. And for Larry O'Connor. I love this music. I'm not sure what it reminds me of, but I but I do love it. <laughs> Um, hey, we are delighted to welcome back our friend Jim Murray. He is chief correspondent for Inside Edition. Jim, how you doing? 
I play that music every time I hear you on the radio. <laughs> uh, it makes me think of you. I either play that or Barry White. Uh, I don't know if that if the, it, it's interesting music. Um, I do love Barry White, the the Walrus of isn't he isn't he known as the Walrus of Love? I don't know. Is he it was, too soon to say that? After he was he was cool. He was cool. So Jim Moran, well, you are too, and that's and that's why I think of you when I listen to his music. Well, thank you. You know, Jim, I, I think it's unfair that uh, that you don't have an opportunity to fully participate in the station activities because you're on the air with me. Because I'm about to give away some tickets, so if you have a second phone nearby, and if you want to be one of the callers, you might get a bit lucky. Uh, KBC welcomes the Damned X and the Reverend Horton Heat at Pacific Amphitheater, July 6. Tickets are on sale now, but you can win a pair of tickets by calling one eight eight eight. Seven nine zero five two 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 right now, and it's furnished by Pacific Amphitheater. So, Jim, if you if you have that second phone, feel free to participate because you can multitask. I, I, absolutely, you I, can. I can multitask. So, uh, I am Jim, multitasking right now. Just so you know, we're getting ready for Inside Edition goes on satellite in in just a few minutes. So, I've been tracking stories for the show, and you know, I'm terrified that they're going to ask me to retract something during our interview. So, oh no, I you're Mr. One Take, uh, and and everybody, uh, <laughs> Channel Two Inside Edition is on Channel Two, 7 p.m. here in Los Angeles. So, Jim, uh, I know you're working on some big stories. Uh, I understand there's a 13 year old who was a, a shark bite victim. Great stories, young boy from San Diego. 13. Last year, he was attacked by a shark. It got him in the face, his shoulder, his back. And just days after the attack, he says, I want to go back in the water. And no. we were with him yesterday. Yeah, and we're airing it tonight where he goes spearfishing uh, off the coast of San Diego. And this kid is fearless. He's, he's great. His mom is terrified because, because she's a mom. And she kisses him and says, oh, don't get bitten by a shark. And then she doesn't want to see him go in the water. Wow. But we're with him. And it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful story because it shows this young boy who is just, he's a sweet kid. And he's fearless and he's got a great attitude. And, you know, he, he's, he's got some injuries, but he pushes through them and he says, I'm going to be fine. And that's it. What a, an amazing strength of mental character there. I mean, you hear about post-traumatic stress disorder. People go through terrible experiences and they have flashbacks. They don't want to get anywhere near the same kind of circumstances. He wants to go back in the water. That's pretty amazing. This kid likes sharks. He says, I like sharks. He doesn't look. You know what? He sounds animal. like the mayor in Jaws. I think he's probably related. <laughs> wow. He's a wonderful kid. I think people will be inspired when they see this little guy. So you're also working on this uh, gal who's on the U.S. soccer team, and she's not real wild about uh, standing at attention for the national anthem. And, of course, Donald Trump, what a shock, has weighed in on that. What, what's your uh, story on that one? Well, you know, it's just this war of words that's heating up. Uh, she says she will not go to the White House if they win. And, and the president says, hey, hey, why don't you win first, and then we'll see what happens. But meanwhile, I'm inviting the team, win, lose, or draw. And, and you should not disrespect the flag. You shouldn't disrespect the White House. You should be happy that we've done so much for you and your team. And, you, you know, it's, it's the same story every day, just different characters involved in a war of words with the president. Well, it's not a shock that she wouldn't go to the White House. I mean, the Biloxi, you know, community center badminton champions won't go. Uh, they hate Donald <laughs> Trump. So uh, They do, yes. Well, he, he hasn't done a lot to make it ingratiate himself with certain athletes. But, but you know, look. Uh, I mean, I understand the point. You, you do want to respect the flag. You want to respect the office. Um, but many people simply don't respect or don't like him. So they're saying, look, I respect the flag, but I'm drawing the line at saying hi to you. And, and look, I understand both points of view. I, I, I really do. And she's she's trying to stand in solidarity with, with respect to the protests involving the NFL and, and kneeling. And she's saying, look, 
I, the, the soccer team says I have to stand at attention, I'll do that. I'm not putting my hand on my heart because what? I'm standing. Yeah, and, and it's the same same story, different sport. We're talking with Jim Murray, chief correspondent for Inside Edition. You can see it on uh, Channel 2 at uh, 7 o'clock tonight. And if I can get my rabbit ears to work, I'll be watching. Uh, well, speaking you don't of, have cable? Uh, no cable? Oh, the rabbit ears are just great, Jim. Just, oh, you have to tilt them yeah. northeast and south-southwest, and You're they're so fine. You're so old school, Royal. You yeah. are well, so just charming. leave the school off. Uh, so, <laughs> speaking of hating Trump, apparently Eric Trump, who you don't really hear about Eric. I mean, everybody talks yeah. about Don Jr., you know, lock him up, and Don Sr., lock him up. Eric, somebody is uh, not happy with Eric? He was at a restaurant in Chicago last night, and a woman allegedly spit on him, a woman who works there. And um, the Secret Service were called in, police were called in. He said he's not going to press charges. She was placed on leave. Um, look, you know what? You, you, can, you can have political views. I, I just think that extending it to family members, to, to people in, in their private lives, is very, it's very troublesome. I, 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 I'm glad he's not pressing charges. I, I said. You know, I suspect he could very easily. One of our producers, Lara Trump, is, is actually she's no longer a producer. She's now married, obviously, to to Eric. She she was with our show for some years. She's a lovely woman, and you know, I feel I feel bad when people you know are getting attacked, not for what they're doing necessarily, but for the views of their family. Oh, you're and absolutely right. I totally agree. I mean, it, it, we'll talk about the death, the death of civility and all those video clips we saw months ago about various members of the Trump administration being yelled at in restaurants. I, I mean, good grief. Vote, know, you know, it's, it's express terrible. yourself, but, you know, leave people alone. I mean, it's common decency. I, hey, I agree. Uh, Jim, we, we have a time for one more uh, thought, and that's about the OJ situation, his Twitter account. He's trying to get a special badge from Twitter so the imposters uh, can be uh, distinguished. I wonder what your take on that is. And are, and are you shocked that he has been out of prison for a year and a half and uh, hasn't seemed to have gotten into any trouble? Well, uh, yes, that does surprise me, given his track record. What What's interesting, though, is how he wants to be embraced. You know, he, he was loved. Uh, certainly here in Los Angeles, around the country. He was a hero. Oh, he's very so charismatic. Yeah. And he is charismatic. I've met him many times. He's he's very charismatic, very charming. Uh, I, I His life is very different from the way it was. He wants to reclaim much of what he lost. I don't think he ever will. But to go on Twitter and say, you know, I want to set the record straight. I got, I got some Yeah, what's that about getting evil? What is he talking I, I, about? I don't, I don't know. He's already killed I, two I, people. How many more people does he want to kill? <laughs> Jeez. He wants to kill rumors is what he wants I to kill. I guess. He, he's still looking for the real killers. <laughs> Incredible. And, and I say that sarcastically because you know how I feel about the situation. <laughs> Jim Murray, Chief Correspondent, Inside <laughs> Edition. Thank you so much for sharing part of your Wednesday morning with us. We'll see you soon, I hope. Take care, Royal. Thanks a lot. 1142 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor. If you'd like to share your thoughts, 1-800-222-KABC. When we come back, I'll explain why the soccer lady is actually legally an idiot. Stay with us. 1146 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Larry O'Connor, talking about the homelessness problem, 1-800-222-KABC. I'll get to uh, why the soccer lady is an idiot uh, momentarily, but first, Keith from Westchester wants to weigh in on the homeless situation. What's up? Yeah, Royal, uh, the deal is um, the city hasn't spent that billion dollars. It's all tied up in engineering. It's tied up in environmental stuff. It's tied up in permits. 
It's not that they've spent it. They haven't spent it yet. Amazing. And so meantime, the crisis gets worse and worse, and we do nothing about it except uh, except see the, the tents go up. I mean, you know, there should be no tents on the street. There should be no shopping carts on the street. Uh, we should have mandatory drug and mental health treatment. There's no right to be a feral, schizophrenic, violent, free spirit. And there should be plenty of shelters. There was that old expression, millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. What about millions for shelters and not one tent on Wilshire? Okay, maybe we can get behind that. Maybe they'll put that up on a billboard. So, uh, the soccer lady, um, the uh, what's her name, Megan Rapinoe, uh, she is uh, protesting national anthem. She wouldn't go to the White House. That's fine, you know, that's her right. But listen to her quote of note. I'm as talented as I am. I get to be here. You don't get to tell me if I can be here or not. So it's kind of a good F you to any sort of inequality or bad sentiments that the administration might have towards people that don't look exactly like him. Well, here's my reaction, Megan Rapinoe. It's an interesting juxtaposition you've got about, on the one hand, being really, really talented as a soccer player. You get to be there. And your unhappiness with any sort of inequality... What are you talking about? Like inequality of talent on the soccer field? I mean, if I showed up and said, hey, I have, uh, uh, I'm underrepresented on your soccer team. Uh, uh, I'd like to be in that starting lineup. What would Megan Rapinoe say to me? She'd say, oh, fine, yeah, here's the ball. You get to be goalie. No, that doesn't, life doesn't work that way. Megan is really, really talented at soccer, and I'm not. She's going to make millions in endorsements and salary, and I'm not. She's going to take nicer vacations and live in a better house, drive a fancier car, all because she has more talent than I have, and because of that, she has a lot more money than I do. Now, if Megan were here, she might say, oh, no, you're twisting my words, Royal. I'm not saying all people are equal in every way. I'm just saying people should receive the same amount of money. Uh, for, you know, uh, we should treat people with compassion. That's all I'm saying. We should have, make sure folks have a minimum level of comfort in their lives when it comes to food and health care and housing and shelter. So actually, Megan and I agree. I, too, think we should have social welfare programs and a social safety net. I think that if people are homeless, we should give them shelters. If they're hungry, they should get money to buy food or have food stamps. But not everybody is entitled to the same house with the same meals and the same vacations and the same car. We figure out a fair and reasonable level of support for people, and we provide it. And to help us figure out the best system, for providing that support, we look to our own experience, the experience of other countries. So, for example, if you let the government pay for everything, does that result in shortages and low quality and really, really long lines and veterans dying in the VA hospitals? Well, if so, then you go another way. You have a market-based system of providing health care and other services, and where people need help from the government, they get it. So this is great, I think. In retrospect, Megan and I are in total agreement, so uh, I'm going to watch uh, her, her soccer match later today. Uh, the issue of uh, the Democrat debate being a sort of a uh, free palooza, free for all tonight, uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how far the progressives go with their promises. Have you heard what Elizabeth Warren wants now? She wants reparations for gays. They couldn't marry for the longest time, so they were cheated out of tax breaks that married folks got. And so she wants to give them $50 million. In addition to that, you've got the progressives talking about how the immigration situation is analogous to concentration camps. Well, even a guy like Bill Maher on his show 
uh, came out and said, hey, Democrats, is this really the way to win an election by talking about concentration camps? He had Dan Savage on the show this week, and Savage was saying, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just like a concentration camp. Meyer said, you really think we're on the road to death camps? And Savage says, well, we're on the road to fascism. I mean, I'm no person to give advice to the Democrats, but if they really want to beat Donald Trump, should they really be talking about gay reparations and concentration camps? And also, speaking of reparations, reparations for slavery. Does Cory Booker really want to go down that road? I don't think so, but we're going to find out tonight when the first 10 Democrats debate. Maybe they'll be pushing some of these agenda items. Time is 11.52 here on Talk Radio 790 KBC. Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor. Stick with us. Welcome back to KBC. Royal Oaks in for Larry O'Connor, but not for long because Dr. Drew and Leanne are here. Dr. Drew, how you doing? Good. How are you? Doing real well. What's up on the big show today? Well, we are efforting Catherine Barger. I don't know if you saw that yesterday where she had her plans for creating some mental health facilities in yes. the jail thwarted. And I'm like, this now I'm outraged on outraged because mm-hmm. she had a great plan. She was trying to help people. The city council, the LA, I'm so used to saying the city council because there's, that's usually where the cowardice right. is, is manifest. But now it's on the LA County, right. LA County Board of Supervisors. The, the cowardice is, is, I need your help. I need your help, Royal Oaks. I need your help because the cowardice is resulting in reckless negligence. These people, that they're, and their reckless negligence is materially and directly causing death. Oh, you're absolutely and I'm, right. And I'm, it's that's, not just that, bad pop If you engage in reckless ne- if you engage in reckless negligence, you'd be held accountable criminally and civilly. Yeah. We need to be able to hold them, hold them all accountable. Because unless they have skin in the game, they're not going to change their behavior. Well, Catherine Barger is an amazing voice for yes, this. So I hope absolutely. you get her. And I hope we will. Of course, I'm biased because um, I've been with the law firm for 40 years that was founded by her dad, oh, Dick Barger. No and Catherine, I've known her since she was a teenager. Nature. She yes. is a tireless worker. She was a staffer for Antonovich for 20 years yep. before she became supervisor. Yep. She works with everybody, hands across the, the aisle. So what else you got going? Uh, Jackie Lacey coming in. Oh, yeah. Super. She has some uh, ideas for dealing with mental health and opiate addiction. And lo and behold, they're the same that Catherine Barger's were. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, I've got to hold her hand to the fire, too, to help us. Because I, I really we need to find a way to get around their qualified immunity royal. We have to. Because unless we can go after them, this is manslaughter now. Yeah. We have a thousand. I asked this of Carol Solwell yesterday. How many have to die? How many deaths before we change direction? How, what's the number? Was, We're at a thousand, and we could tick to 10,000 like that because of the infectious diseases that are out there now. It's a total scandal. And I bet Jackie's motivated to do the right thing. I know. I, I hear I, there, I, I, this I need, guy in San Francisco may challenge her for the, uh, he's the San Francisco DA and he wants to be the LA DA. I, I'm hearing, well, seeing some articles like that. I'm, so. I'm a Jackie Lacey fan, so I'm going to hope we're going to get somewhere with her. So, you know, and we're going to talk to, uh, let's see what else we got, Leanne. We got assistant professor of head and neck surgery talk. You know, uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter's wife just passed away of head and neck cancer. Oh. It's all related to HPV. People need to get their vaccines. We're going to get into that deeper. Fantastic. Leanne, Dr. Drew, have a wonderful show. Thank Ladies you. and gentlemen, keep your dial where it is on KABC. It has been uh, terrific this morning. Great to have uh, John Katie's Klimak of NBC Forum and uh, Jim Murray. Uh, have yourself a great week. Royal Oaks and for Larry O'Connor. Take care. Thank you.